morning. Glad that you're here this morning. We're in, as Rick read, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. And it's not an accident that you're here this morning. It's not an accident that you're in the middle of whatever you're in the middle of this morning. And we're going to see that clearly in this text. This is the third incident after the Red Sea where Israel is grumbling to God about their circumstances. If you remember just a few weeks ago, they were at Massa and there, or Mara rather, they were there arguing over the water. They didn't like the quality of the water. It was bitter and they didn't like it and they complained to God. And then after that, they didn't have bread or meat in the wilderness and they again grumbled to God and he provided for them again. And now we're in the third scene, just like those previous two scenes where their circumstances are difficult. They're at a new place, Rephidim, and there is absolutely no water to be found. And they again grumble to God. But this text is unique because this time they don't just grumble, they quarrel, it says, with God. They argue to his face. And what does he do? He shows them astounding grace. This text is going to be so amazing and so beautiful and so wonderful this morning. And I think the things that we need to see in this text that come straight from the text is first, God strategically placed his people in this place. That they are not here by accident. That he has strategically placed them where they will have to rely on him. They will have no other choice. There is no other option but to rely on him, to cry out to him. But the text shows us that instead of crying out to him, instead of relying on him, instead of pleading to him, instead of casting themselves on him and his care for them, they quarrel with God. They argue with God. They point their finger in his face and blame him and try him is what the text is going to tell us. And then the most amazing thing, instead of getting his wrath, Instead of being squashed like a bug, they get his steadfast, faithful, always long-suffering grace. He pours out overwhelming grace, and he does it from the most unlikely of sources, the most unlikely of places, the most impossible place. He pours it out from a rock. This text is unbelievable. Let's look at the first point. God strategically positioned his people so that they would rely upon him. The the very first verse, verse 1, tells us that God has led them to this place. The people set out from the wilderness of sin to Rephidim. And in Rephidim, there is absolutely no water for the people to drink. This is significant. This is important for us to understand. Rephidim is certainly a location. It's it's intended to give us the location of their travels, the the route of their journey, but it's telling us infinitely more than that because at Rephidim, there is no water. What that means is that they encamped in a place where there's no immediate water in that place, nor is there an oasis within walking distance in any direction. It's not uncommon to camp at a place but not have water in that place as long as you have an oasis that you can walk to, that you can take your your flocks to, your, your herds to. As long as you can get there and back within walking distance, then it's okay. But they don't even have that. This place has absolutely no water. The the text says they encamped at Rephidim, but there was not water for the people to drink. This text is telling us where they're at, but it's also showing us something profound about God. It's showing us his heavenly, fatherly care for his children. He has placed them in this spot strategically. The text says they encamped at Rephidim, but there was not water for the people to drink And the people were were moving on by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord. This is not an accident that they are in a place where there is no water, where there's no water within walking distance. They are in this place by the will of God. They are in this specific, strategic, sovereignly placed, sovereignly chosen location of adversity. 
Not because God is out to harm his people, but because he's out to help them. He's doing this to wean them from their past life, to wean them from their love of Egypt, to wean them from where they've come from, and to call them to trust him daily. That's what he's doing here in this text. This is not Mara where the water was bitter. They just had water, but it was not the water they wanted. This is Rephidim where there is no water. Absolutely no water. And yet God has sovereignly, strategically placed his people in this location. By the commandment of the Lord, they are in this place. He placed them in a location where they cannot physically provide for themselves. And he placed them in this location so that they would rely on him and nothing else. Do you see it? Do you hear his fatherly care in this moment? He longs and loves to provide for his children. He loves to lavish on them his grace, his provision, his rescue. He longs to come to their cry. He's done it from the beginning of this book up until this point. And yet in this text, instead of crying out to God, pleading with God, turning to God, instead the text does not read when they reached a place with no water, they got on their knees and they pleaded to God, God, come to our rescue, come be our our Lord, come be our Savior, come rescue us. They didn't do that. Instead they complained. Instead they grumbled. Instead they quarreled. God has intentionally, has intentionally placed them in this location where they would have to fully rely on him for his provision. We were created to be dependent upon God. Every moment, every breath, every thought, everything. We were created this way. But we rebelled against that in order to be independent from God and fully dependent on ourselves. And God is teaching his people in this moment. That's not where life is found. Life is not found out from under my authority, independent from me, dependent on yourself. In fact, that's where death is found. That's where lifelessness is found. That is a barren desert. That is where there is no water, there is no life. No, come under my authority. Come under my leadership. Submit to my fatherly care and you will find that I love and I long to rescue my children, to provide for my children. Psalm 147, 11 says this, but the Lord takes pleasure. It means delight. He takes pleasure. He delights in those who fear him. And then it qualifies that. In those who hope in his steadfast love. What does that mean? Those who hope in his faithful fatherly care, those who trust in his provision, those who hope in him, those who cast themselves onto his care, lean on him, shift the center of balance from themselves to him. He delights, he takes pleasure in providing for. The Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love. And what is it that he delights in most? Jeremiah 32, 41. He rejoices in doing them good. But they're in Rephidim where there is no water. How can that be good? That's their question. God, how could you have me in this place? How could you allow this in my life? God, where are you? And In fact, verse 7, they're going to say, God is not with us. The irony, the arrogance of what they're saying, given what we have witnessed in their lives over the last several weeks in the text, is astonishing. It's astounding. God delights to do them good. Jeremiah 9.24, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. And then this sentence, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What does God delight in? In practicing steadfast love towards his children. In practicing justice and righteousness. What does that mean? In doing good to his children. He delights to do good to his own. It brings him joy to rescue you, to provide for you. 
It brings him delight. It brings him great pleasure. Do you realize that? Do you recognize that? Do you see that yet in this text? He has them exactly where he wants them, and it's not to harm them, it's to help them. This is what they don't yet understand. They should be saying this. I've hit Rephidim, I've hit waterless circumstances, I've hit barren circumstances, I've hit adversity, I'm in the adversity of life. They should immediately say, I am exactly where God wants me. And he is with me here. Those two things are what they have lost sight of in the middle of their adversity, in the middle of their suffering, in the middle of their tragedy, in the middle of their trials. That's what they've lost sight of. The truth that God is orchestrating has led them there by his commandment and he is with them there and loves and longs to come to their rescue. He has them there to wean them off of Egypt, to wean them off of their self-reliant, independent hearts, and to teach them to daily depend on him. But what do they do? What do they do? Do they get down on their knees and cry out to God? Do they get down on their knees and plead to him? Do they praise him for all of his goodness and his past faithfulness and, and trust him for his present delivery? No, they don't do that. Instead, the text tells us that they quarrel with God. And this is escalating from the previous text that we've looked at. Previously, in 1522-27, they grumbled, what shall we drink? They grumbled. In 16.1-36 last week, they grumbled, did you bring us here to starve? To grumble is to passive aggressively, under your breath, though it's directed at a person, it's directed at God, though it's directed at him, it's passive aggressively, just cannot believe that I'm in this circumstance. I cannot believe that this is... Can you believe that this is happening? That's grumbling. That's, that's anger. It's, it's passive-aggressive, largely. But in this text, they quarrel. They demand, it says, give us water to drink. Now! It's a, it's a demand. It's a command to the Almighty God. Answer me. Do for me. Do what I tell you to do. It's astonishing. And then they say, did you bring us here to die of thirst? There is a very subtle but very important distinction between grumbling and what they're doing in this text. As I mentioned, grumbling, it means to, it it can be aggressive and overt, but it's largely passive-aggressive. It's under your breath and it's directed at someone. In this case, it's directed at God. But it, it's, it's, I can't believe this. You know, I've, I've shared you know I used to work at a university. And I think that there is no profession that is, has perfected passive-aggressive statements than professors. There's no other profession that has perfected how to be passive-aggressive. One, one day, the, the university we worked at at the end of the year, graduation, everybody has an assignment. If you were a professor and you didn't want to sit out in the crowd in the funny hat and the funny robe, then you had an assignment. My assignment was to guard the doors where all the graduates were getting ready and then they would process out into the room and, and then there was another professor there with me. And I'm not going to stand between a mom and her only child graduating when she wants to get 30 second picture with her I'm just not going to stand in the way of that so we have moms come up, hey I want to get a picture of my daughter I forgot I didn't get here in time blah 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 okay two minutes go take a picture and my counterpart defender of the door over here this professor literally starts starts standing there in front of his door and he starts turning he turns to his door that's behind him can you believe this Can you believe this guy? I cannot believe this guy. He's arguing with a door about me standing next to him. That's passive-aggressive grumbling. That's what he was doing in that moment. Just two nights ago, middle of the night, wake up, go in. I'm going to change Eleanor. I'm going to feed her. It's it's a middle of the night, and I'm changing her, and she takes her passy, and it's like slow motion. And she drops it behind the dresser. And what do I do? 
I start grumbling in that moment. I cannot believe you. What are you thinking? And she starts screaming at the top of her lungs. You dropped it over there. What are you saying? You did this. You didn't have to drop it over there. Why are you crying? You did this. I'm grumbling in that moment. That's not quarreling. That's not what these Israelites are doing in this moment. They are quarreling. To quarrel is open hostility. It's to accuse It's to combatively argue your point with someone. It is to point your finger in the face of someone else. So my professor friend that's over here grumbling at the door about me is saying, can you believe who this guy, can you believe him? Who does this guy think he is? This is, who do you think you are? That is what they're doing in this moment. It's directed at God. It literally it, 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 has, it came to be used as a legal term to try someone, to put someone on trial. This moment, in this moment, Israel is putting God on trial. And they're bringing formal accusations against him. The text is clear that it is against him. They are literally shouting accusations, contending with him, lodging their complaints of dissatisfaction to him. And it is against him. How do we know that? The text first says, when they say, give us water to drink. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's a demand. But it's plural. So it's directed verbally to Moses, but it is ultimately directed at God. It's a plural imperative, meaning it's directed at two different audiences or multiple audiences. So they're saying it to Moses, but they're directing it at God. How, do we, how else do we know it? The text says in verse 2, Moses asks the question. He rightly assesses the situation and points this out to them. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Who am I? Why do you quarrel with me? And then he says, why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? So Moses is rightly understanding that your anger, your frustration, your bitterness, while directed at me, while coming out on me, is really directed at God. You really need to take this up with him. You really are actually taking this up with him. They're really trying God, testing God. That word test is not the first time that this has come up. The first time we saw this was back at Marah when they encountered the bitter water. And in that context, it says God tested Israel. There's two different ways to understand tests. And every single time when God tests, he's not testing so they fail, he's testing so they see. In other words, he tests to reveal. He is testing them so that they see the bitterness of their own hearts at Mara. And in this moment... They are testing him. The tables have turned. God is an infinite, omniscient God, meaning he knows everything at all times in all places. When he asks questions, it's not because he doesn't know. It's because we don't know. So his asking or his testing is to reveal. But the tables have turned here. They're not doing that. They are accusing God. They are finite in their understanding, and they are lodging a complaint against an infinite, omniscient God. What they are doing is accusing God. They are putting God on trial. So if we're summarizing what's happening here, finite, limited, infinitely small, little baby Israel has put God on trial. They're angrily lifting their fists to God. They're shouting their accusations to him. They're combatively arguing and complaining. They're interrogating God. Quite literally, they're scolding God. Now we have to ask, what are they scolding him for? What are they arguing against God? What are they complaining about? What are they questioning? They're scolding God and they're questioning his loving faithfulness and his presence. The text tells us those are the two things that they are scolding him for. You don't love us. You have not been faithful to us. That's the first thing that they're arguing. They question his love and faithfulness. And the second is... You aren't even here with us. You don't care about us. You aren't walking with us. You don't know our pain. You aren't, where were you? Where are you in the middle of our suffering? Those are the two things 
that they're arguing and they're complaining. Let's take them in order. The question, the first question, they first question his love and his faithfulness. They say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with, fur, with thirst? That, that sentence is interesting because it's, it begins in the plural context. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? But it really is, is singular after that. To kill me? To kill my children? To kill my livestock with thirst? That's what the original Hebrew reads. They're taking it extremely personal that God has not provided for them in the way that they want him to provide in the timing in which they want him to provide. Let's think about this for just a second. They think, they are accusing God of, they think he wants to kill them. They're accusing him of wanting to kill them. Let's think about this for just a second. If he wanted, if God wanted to kill them, why did he spend a single nanosecond rescuing them out of Egypt? What's more is if he wanted to kill them, we've already seen that he can destroy in spectacular ways. He had the army of Egypt surrounding Israel, dead to rights. He had the sea. He could have just brought that over Israel and destroyed them. If he wanted to kill them, there's so many more spectacular ways that he could have gone about it than taking them into this little desert cul-de-sac refidim, refidim and, and allowed them to, to die of thirst. But let's go further than that. Let's go to truth. What, is the, what does the word say? Let's just go to one reference Exodus chapter 16, verse 21. We already saw it. We saw it last week. Morning by morning, they gathered manna and quail. God, you don't love us. Can you guys pass some more manna? God, you don't care about us. Could you put a little bit more dark meat between the manna for me, please? At the literal moment, that, that very morning, the very morning of them breathing out this assault, this accusation against God, they picked up manna from the earth that he rained down for them. With the very breath that they're breathing out this assault, he gave it to them in their lungs. The irony of what they're doing in this moment the arrogance of what they're doing in this moment, accusing him of not loving them when he has rained down bread and quail from heaven, when he's given them the very breath to use against him. It's astonishing what's happening in this moment. The other thing that they accuse God of is they question his very presence among them. Verse 7 says that. That's exactly why he names the place what he does. Masa and, and Meribah, because they quarreled and tested God there, because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? They are questioning his very presence among them. Let's again think back. They were the ones in Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2 that cried out, for the living God to hear their cries, to come down and rescue them. And he came down in spectacular fashion. And for ten plague miracles, he displayed his power. He displayed his presence among Egypt and among the Israelites. Remember, the Israelites did not experience the plagues. He protected them. Repeatedly, we, we pointed out, while Egypt experienced it, this little place of Goshen did not experience it. Why? Because God was in their midst protecting them. He has been with them, leading them every step of the way. Let's go again to truth. What does Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 and 22 say? While they're breathing out this accusation, you're not with us. Just over their shoulder is a magnificent, huge pillar of cloud. The very presence of God in their midst. Exodus chapter 13 verse 21 and 22 said that he went before them as a cloud by day and fire by night and never departed from them. 
at the very moment that they're accusing God of being absent among them, he's standing in their midst. Do you see the arrogance, the blindness of these people in this moment? They are absolutely blind to objective observation that you and I can make from the text, objective truth the text proclaims. We have to ask the question, what on earth leads them and us to get to a place like this? To question God, to question his love, to question his presence, to lift our fist against him, to point our finger in his chest and say, you don't know what you're doing. What leads them to that place? They're not measuring God by truth. They're measuring God by their own limited, finite reason, by their own little fickle emotions and heart, by their circumstances. They're they're questioning God's faithfulness, God's love. They're saying, quite literally, God, you are a conditionally loving God. You only love me on condition. In other words, they're placing his love, they're making it contingent upon what they get from him. God, we don't have what we want in the timing that we want it, where we want it, how we want it. You don't love me. God, I don't see your presence. I don't feel your presence right here, so you're not with me. It's a, it's shocking. It's astonishing. It's staggering what they're doing. They don't measure his faithfulness and his love by truth. They measure it by limited reason, their volatile emotions, and their difficult circumstances. They're convinced by their own limited finite reason, by their own emotions, by their own circumstances, that God doesn't love them. Do you hear what they're being right now? They're being three-year-olds. We have a three-year-old in our house, and if we don't give her what she wants, you don't love me. They're being three-year-olds in this moment. They're measuring God, his love and his faithfulness by what he gives them. They're calling him a conditional God. If God, they're reasoning in their minds, if God loves us, he would give us everything we want when we want it how we want it, where we want it. You haven't given me everything I want, so you don't love me. They're reasoning in their minds that suffering and adversity are signs that he's against us. We're suffering, so you aren't with us. Clearly, you can't be with us if we're suffering. But this text makes it clear. They are in Rephidim, By the commandment of God. They're in the middle of this situation because I am has them exactly where he wants them. And I am is with them. In their minds, his love and his faithfulness, his presence are all contingent on him giving them what they want. What they don't understand. What they cannot fathom. What they cannot see with their own limited, finite perspectives. What all they, they're inundated with, while all they're inundated with is their emotions and their circumstances, what they cannot see is that God has led them here for this very purpose. God, you can't possibly love us if you've led us here to thirst and to hunger. Deuteronomy 8, 8 verse 2 says, quite contrary. <laughs> It says that the Lord led them into the wilderness to humble them so that they would hunger and that they would thirst, but not simply for quail and manna and water, but so that they would hunger and thirst for the Lord God alone. He has them in this very moment, not so that they would go, oh no, we ran out of quail. Oh no, we ran out of water. Oh no, our circumstances are terrible. Oh no, we're so pitiful. Oh no, God doesn't love us. No, he led them to this moment so that they get on their knees and cry out to God. So they plead with him, come and rescue Heavenly Father, you are our provider. You are our rescue. You come to the aid of your children. You have not left us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. That is what they are intended to cry out, but that's not what they cry out in this moment. 
Instead, they turn on God and essentially blame God of loving them conditionally. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This is so unbelievable about this text. Accusing him is in reality accusing themselves. God, you don't love us because you haven't given us everything that we want. They're blaming him of loving them conditionally when in reality they are doing the very thing that they're blaming him of. The scriptures tell us, Psalm 78 verse 56, that they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and they withheld their obedience. In other words, if you're not going to give me what I want, I'm going to throw a temper tantrum here and I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to follow your testimonies, Psalm 78, 56. I'm not going to obey. They are withholding their obedience and their worship and their affection and their praise of God because he hasn't given them what they want. They are trying to strong arm God in this moment. They're trying to twist his arm. They're trying to accuse him and they're scolding him of not loving them. As they accuse God of being unfaithful, they are being unfaithful. As they accuse God, they reveal themselves as self-righteous, sinful, little, arrogant judges trying to play God. They reveal what's in every human heart. Now, if you're like me at this point in this text, you're reading this text and you're going, these ridiculous people. Oh my goodness, how could they be so ungrateful? 16 wonderful, amazing chapters of God's provision. How could they forget? How could they, while manna is raining down from heaven, say, God, you don't love me and are not faithful? How could they say, while the pillar of cloud is right there, God, you're not with us? How could they, do th- how could they be so ungrateful? How could they be so unfaithful? How could they be so forgetful? I can't believe these people. And at that moment, you and I are hooked by the text. Because what we're staring at is a mirror. We're staring at our own hearts on display. We're staring at ourselves in this moment. Because while God is raining down blessings left and right around us, we still lift our fists and accuse him. While God is pouring out his presence in our midst, we still blame him of not loving us, of not being with us. While God is giving us breath to breathe eyes to see his beauty and glory, while we're seeing these things and and, and, and able to experience these things, we still accuse him. And we still withhold our worship. And we still act conditionally. We've been hooked by the text. Let me switch this just a little bit. Let me ask you, if this was, if these were your children, If this was your employee, if this was your spouse, after you've lavished blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, given out opportunity after opportunity, and they've got their fist in your chest, and they're arguing with you, and they're doing more than arguing with you, they are blasting you. They're accusing you. And they're yelling at you, how would you respond? You'd take that finger and you'd turn it around real quickly, wouldn't you? If it's your child, you'll say, oh, I'll show you. You'll say the famous phrase every parent says, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Don't you realize that food that you're complaining about on that table, I put on that table? You and I would just unleash fury and anger and wrath in that circumstance and in that situation. Or at minimum, we would at least expect God to go completely like he went in Job chapter 40 verse 2. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. 
we would expect God to at least to do what he did with Job in chapter 38 and Job's accusers. Where were you when I formed the sun and the moon and the stars? Where were you when I cast them into the sky and named each one by name? Were you there when I started the lightning bolt, every single one of them, and and crafted a channel for that lightning bolt to take every single one of them? Can you go out and hunt for the young lion? Do you hear the cry of every single raven and provide for its needs? Were you there when I crafted you in, the, in your mother's womb? Were you there when I numbered your hairs, each one, and numbered your days? We would expect God to do that. But they don't get that. They get unbelievable, astounding, staggering grace. And this is the most unbelievable, most wonderful, most beautiful gospel picture in this whole scene. He does exactly opposite of what they are accusing him of. He does not love them conditionally. He does not love them or withhold his love based on their actions and anger and accusations towards him. No, he does something radically different. He bestows grace on them. He pours out his love on them. His accusers don't get his wrath. They get his grace. Those who quarrel with him aren't split in two as they should be. They get a rock split in two on their behalf. They aren't pierced. A rock is pierced on their behalf. They don't receive the barren desert of his rejection. They get the life-giving water of his presence. This is the most amazing, astounding thing that we see in this text. God is truly slow to anger. He is truly abounding, overflowing with steadfast, forever faithful love. While they complain he doesn't love them and has left them, This is our third point. He remains steadfast and pours out his grace from a rock. We see that Moses responds as the people of Israel should have responded. Moses is the type. that He is how we should respond, but they are the anti-type. They are not how we should respond. Moses responds how they should have responded. He says in verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And with that, the Lord responds, verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. Every single thing in this text is intentional, and strategic. And it's staggering and mind-blowing what's happening here. The staff represents God's power, God's authority, and God's judgment. But it's a particular staff. You know he used, Moses used the staff of God for a number of different things. He, he struck the ground and it turned the dust and it turned to gnats. He held it up and it parted the Red Sea. But how does God frame the, the use of the staff in this verse? Take the staff that you used to strike the Nile. Take it in your hand and go before the people. Do you remember what happened when he struck the Nile with a staff? He struck the Nile with a staff and it turned to blood. He cut off their water supply. Do you remember what the people did when God's wrath was poured out in that moment? They, they, the, the water turned to blood. They, their water supply was cut off and they went to the sand and they, they started to dig on the seashore, on the, on the Nile shore, dig deep, deep, deep down into the sand and all they got was more bloody water. They were desperate for water. The people thirsted for water. God poured out his wrath and the people thirsted for water. But what does he do in this text? If the wrath, it is the staff of God's wrath walks out in front of you and the last time you saw it and it's called the staff that was used to strike the Nile, the people of Israel would have immediately started to think a little bit about what they've done. 
Oh my goodness, that's, that's, the, that's the staff. That's the one, that's God's power. That's God's judgment. That's God's authority. And he is about to bring it down. Who's he going to bring it down on? Who's it going to come down on? Is he going to bring it down on us? What's he going to do with that staff? And what does he do? Moses takes the staff. Before Moses takes the staff, God stands on the rock and the staff of judgment comes down on the rock. God turns in that moment, he turns on the taps of his grace and he pours out his grace. Do you see what's happening? God is signifying that he is with them and for them. The last time the staff was used on the Nile, it cut off a water supply. It was the staff of his wrath, the staff of his judgment. It was brought down and water was cut off and the people thirsted. In this moment, they are thirsting and the staff of his judgment comes down and water pours forth. But where does it come down on? It comes down on the rock, the rock that God is standing on. What on earth is happening here? What's the difference between those two episodes? It's the overwhelming, astounding, staggering grace of God. That's what's on display. That's what we're seeing here. They are trying God. They have taken God to trial. They are accusing God of being unloving, unfaithful, and absent from their midst. And in this scene, which is a trial, there are witnesses, the elders of Israel, There's a scepter, the scepter of judgment. And there's a trial stand, the rock. But who's on trial? God. Rather than put them on trial, rather than bring his wrath down on them, he brings his wrath down on himself. And in bringing his wrath down on himself, he pours out his astounding, lavish, unbelievable grace on his people do you see what's going on here in this moment i am has them exactly where he wants them and i am is with them and for them we're witnessing his steadfast covenant forever love they cannot turn off his grace They cannot turn off his love. He promised to be faithful to them. Genesis chapter 12. He promised to enter into a relationship with them. He promised to provide for them. He promised to be with them. He promised, he promised, he promised. And he is keeping his word in this moment. The whole point of this narrative is that Yahweh is their provider and he has brought them here to teach them to daily rely on him, to daily depend on him, to cry out to him. The text says that they tested God, but Psalm 81.7 says he was testing them at the waters at Meribah. They accuse God. God's revealing their hearts to them at Meribah. He's revealing their own fickle, conditional, inconsistent, arrogant, unfaithful hearts. In in essence, God is asking and answering the question, do you want to know if I love you? Do you want to know if I'm faithful? Do you want to know if I'm with you? Do you want to know if I'm for you? Look to the rock. Look to the rock. Look to the staff of judgment that came down on the rock. Who did it come down on? Did it come down on you? No, it came down on God. Look to the rock. Look to the rock that was split on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to be. Look to the rock that was pierced so that you wouldn't have to be. Look to the rock and see God's staggering, astounding grace. Obviously, I think you see it, but this is so clearly pointing us forward to the New Testament and to Jesus. It's unbelievable. In this text, we see grumbling accusers finding fault in God rather than trusting him. Rather than trust him, they accuse him. What do we get in Luke chapter 4? What do we get in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan? He tells him, take up those Take up the stones, turn them into bread. And Jesus, rather than taking things into his own hands, trusts God. And he says, man shall not live by 
bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, from the hand of God. In other words, Jesus trusts. He is our substitute. He trusts where Israel fails. He obeys where Israel fails. He lives a life that you and I could not live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. In this text, the people quarrel for water. What do we get in John chapter 4? What do we get in John chapter 7? But Jesus saying, I am living water. Whoever comes to me will not thirst. Why? Because out of him, through him, up in him will flow springs of living water to eternal life. In this text, God provides life-giving water out of impossibly rocky, impossibly barren circumstances. What do we see in Ezekiel 36? What do we see in uh, the New Testament, we see that Jesus, in Jesus, God transforms rocky, barren hearts into overflowing springs of living water. He takes our hearts of stone and he turns them to hearts of flesh. In this text, it's the rock of God that's pierced for them, and that's where life is found. In the New Testament, Jesus is God's rock struck on our behalf. And in him is where life is found. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 1 to 4, he says, I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that big pillar, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, And the rock was Christ. Though we arrogantly accuse him of being unloving, uncaring, unfaithful, absent from our lives, we are blind to the truth and the reality that this word proclaims, which is he is so loving and so caring and so faithful and so present. He came in bodily form and died. He entered into our suffering. He entered into our calamities. He entered into our adversities and he was split in two on our behalf. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? I thirst. Don't you see he thirsted so you don't have to? He thirsted so you and I don't have to. When his side was pierced, what flowed? Blood and water. He is the rock that we must look to. In this text, all that Israel gives to God is Mirabah and Massa, testing and quarreling. And what do they get? All they get in response is God's lavish grace. What do we get in the New Testament? Though you and I are rebels, Romans 5 eight. though we have lifted our fists to God, though we have pointed our finger at Him, though we accuse Him with our actions, with our words, with our lives, yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is unbelievable. This is the gospel on display. And the question of the text is, have you looked to the rock? Is Jesus your hope? Is he the rock to which you look and upon which your life is built? Has your hard heart been split in two by his staggering grace? Here's what's interesting. From this moment on, this is a a pinnacle moment in the life of Israel. This is a a, a huge moment in the life of Israel. From this moment on, the Old Testament and the New point back to this moment, constantly reminding, do not test God. Do not turn to the waters of Mirabah and Massah. Do not turn back to those waters. In Psalm 95 and in Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 13, both texts say rather than test God, Bring your heart and test it. Rather than try God, bring your heart to trial. Rather than accuse Him, let's accuse your heart. Let's look at our hearts. In other words, inspect our own hearts. See to it that our heart is not hard, the text tells us. See to it that we do not have a sinful and hardened, unbelieving heart. Put our own hearts on trial. Put our own emotions on trial. Put our own circumstances on trial. 
and allow the reality of God's surpassing grace to break our hard hearts, to melt our hard hearts, to split our hard hearts in two. Look to the truth. Don't measure him by your circumstances. Don't measure him by your emotions. Measure him by the word. Measure him by the truth. Measure him by the cross. If that's happened for you, then the secondary imperative of this text is to recognize that we never graduate from grace. We never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from trusting him. We don't walk through the Red Sea and say, whew, that was a close one. Now i got to figure out the rest of my life. No, we are rescued and redeemed. And now, today, this moment, we look to him. We trust him. We cry out to him. We plead to him. God, I can't take another step without you. God, I need you to provide. I need you to come in. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength. I don't have the patience to love my children or my spouse or my coworker or my boss. I don't have it, but you do. I despair of myself and I hope in you. That's what the test was intended to lead them to. They were intended to despair of themselves and hope in and cry out to him. We have to remember this is the third scene after the Red Sea where God is reminding the people of Israel that they're intended to live daily on him. And that truth is still true for you and I. Though we have been rescued from our own Red Sea of bondage to sin, we don't cross the finish line. We're crossing the starting line if we've placed our faith in Christ. Now every single day is a dependence on Him. We're not just passing through a hotel. The gospel is our home where we live. It's not just one class. It's the entire education system in which we learn. It's the thing we have to constantly return to and cry out in the midst of. This is an unbelievable story about God's grace from impossible circumstances, water from a rock. And how do they get to experience it? It's because God goes on trial. God is pierced on their behalf. God's wrath pours out on him so that it doesn't have to pour out on them or you and I. Let's pray.